Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Some travelers could care less about architecture. Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque, it's enough to put them to sleep. But in the hands of a good teacher, even the most skeptical travelers can become enthusiastic students of architecture. Imagine stepping into a Gothic cathedral and being able to excitedly nudge your travel partner and say, isn't this a marvelous improvement over Romanesque? Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're joined by Catherine Rogers Merlino from the University of Washington. Catherine will help us make sense of all those flying buttresses, Victorian facades, and the modern landmarks of innovators like Gaudi and Gary. And later in the hour, guidebook author Kerry Moran takes us on a mini-tour of the ancient city of Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. She'll fill us in on the exotic and ever-changing scene at the top of the world. Stay with us. It's Yaks and Yeti and Domes and Arches coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Now we're going to learn a little bit about architecture. Now, you may see architecture on a travel show, but, you know, in so many ways, appreciating architecture helps you appreciate your travels. We're going to find out what the big deal is because I've got with me a friend who's a tour guide as well as an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Washington. She uh, leads their foreign study program in Rome, and she's joined us to talk about architecture appreciation in your travels. Catherine Rogers Merlino. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, when we're talking about architecture appreciation, I'm your typical uh, traveler. I go to the famous buildings because, well, they're famous. For instance, the, the there's a chapel by uh, Le, Cubos, Le, Le Courbusier. How do you say that? Courbusier. Courbusier. We just call him Corb. Corb. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a helpful yeah, a thing. Le Corbusier. Corbusier. Thank you. He's got a chapel that every architecture student knows in Ronchamp, right? Right. In France, where uh, Switzerland, Germany, and France all come together. I was walking up to this church. I knew it was a textbook thing for modern architecture, and I was sort of doing it as a sightseeing obligation. And I was walking through this grassy field toward the church, and it was like all of these other tourists around me happened to be architects, and they were like falling to their knees, and they were just overwhelmed by the beauty of the thing. And I was looking around going, well, what's the big deal? All right, now you lead tours, and you've done this for years. You take um, architectural students to Europe uh, through Mm -hmm. the University of Washington, how do you impress upon people the value of appreciating architecture, and, and what are some uh, fun insights that can actually make this um, a fun part of somebody's travels? Well, with with Ronchamp, it's it's a it's a wonderful site, especially for architecture students. It definitely is a pilgrimage site. So I, I love the fact that you noticed these were architecture students, right? Um, but I think that architecture it's such a large part of of your travels, and uh, what maybe sixty percent of what you're going to visit you know, is really it's the built environment. It's, it's, it's the That's built right. environment, architecture, landscape, cities. So I really feel like when you study architecture and you, you look at it in your travels, you're learning a lot about the people in the society that built this. I think um, when I teach architecture, I really take the, the approach that architecture is learning the society and what they felt was important during that time period when it's built. And of course, when you're traveling through Europe, looking at Ronchamp, you're looking at the modern period, or you're looking at Notre Dame, the beginning of the Gothic, you're just learning about that specific time period, and you're really looking back into the people who built that. So in a way, it's kind of a time tunnel experience. If you can imagine building that thing or, or what it was built for, who paid for it, and so on, it gives you an insight right. into that little slice of the story of the country you're traveling to see. In so many cases, this, the traveler's ability to get wowed and to get goosebumps and so on uh, is, is based on what they know about it. If you know a lot about music, you'll enjoy the music. If you don't know anything about the architecture, you might be sort of bored in the great buildings. But, boy, it behooves people not to be scholars necessarily, but just to, to know enough to, to really appreciate it. As a as a tour guide, when when I when you take somebody into a Gothic cathedral or something like this, how can we understand the uh, the magnificence of it really? Well, I think with the Gothic theater, it's a great example because so many of them are you know your mouth. Even if you don't know anything about the Gothic, the the impact, the emotional impact is so incredible for tourists. You know, when I brought people to Gothic cathedrals for the first time, their mouths drop open. The scale of the building, the beauty of the sculpture, you know, they're really impressed by that. But it's so much more impressive when you understand that this style of architecture, which, you know, started outside of Paris around the year, you know, 1000, was considered radical and modern. It was actually called the new style. So whenever a church was constructed in France from the year 1000 to 1200, they said, build me a church in the new style. It was that radical, and it didn't even need any more naming than that. Wow. So this this idea from this abbot who invented this style was really 
um, based on a new idea of how to build for the Christian world. And it was an incredible way, and it became the only way to build these churches, so they're scattered everywhere. And whether Gothic or Romanesque or any any number of different styles, when you think of the uh, the investment of a community in building these huge structures, they were poor, simple societies that were able to build these, even today, incredible, breathtaking buildings. Um, everybody uh, pitched in. It was uh, ground was broken, and there was no way it was going to get finished in anybody's lifetime. Notre right, Dame took right. two hundred years to build. Right. Still, they 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 invested themselves in it. Uh, they poured all of their energy into it. Uh, and why was that? I mean, I can't imagine us uh, making such a huge investment in something that wouldn't even be appreciated in our lifetime. Right. Well, you know, this is the time period when the whole world really focused on on the church, and your whole life was based on you were, you were born into a specific social um, place. You could not really move from that social place that you were born into. And so your whole life was really preparing for the afterlife, into the world, to go into, into the heavens. And so by doing that, you would make these incredible buildings that— were uh, focused on on the glory for God and the glory of the church. And so it was really incredible because you can look at this one type of architecture in the Middle Ages and say this is what they felt was important. This is what they focused their society on. And if you look at what we have left over of buildings from the Middle Ages, the rest of the, the vernacular, which is kind of the common architecture of the houses, there's not much of that left. That was not what they poured their money into because that was not the focus of that era. So, yeah, you can really uh, read into what uh, survived the ages as uh, what were the priorities of that generation or right, whatever. Right, yeah. absolutely. In all of Spain, I think, during the uh, the age of the Inquisition, there was just the big palace built, the El Escorial. Right. That was, uh, what age was that? That must have been... Uh, 1500s, 1600s. 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 So in the, 1600s. in the 1600 period, uh, all of Spain is kind of empty, and all the energy was put into this one great building, and you right. can read a lot into that. Right. I'm talking with Catherine Rogers Merlino, who's an um, assistant professor of architecture at the University of Washington, but uh, even more appropriate for all of us, she is a tour guide and leads study programs all around Europe appreciating architecture. Let's take a quick sweep through architectural history. Traveling anywhere, you'll find Greek and, and Roman motifs. When we think of Greek architecture... We're thinking of more ideals and so on, and then we think of Roman, we're thinking of hardcore engineering. Right. How would you characterize the difference between Greek and Roman? Well, with the Greeks, you know, they were really the last of what we call the megalithic architects. They built with big pieces of marble. They built big columns. They concentrated on very specific styles of architecture like the temple, and they perfected it. And they, they used the, the Doric and the Ionic, the Corinthian, and they just used it over and over again. And they were incredible artists. And they were really interested in focusing and perfecting that type of architecture. Now, help me with this, because there is this elegance and this artist, you're saying, in the, and this is 300 years before Christ or something, this right. uh, classical Greek stuff, megalithic, made out of big stones. Right. And they wanted it to be harmonious. The way I understand it, an architect knows, and you're an architect, so maybe you can confirm this, that if you have a long, straight line, the optical illusion is it's going to sag. So the, uh, the Greeks knew this, and they uh, consequently bowed the, uh, the baseline of their, their temples, like the Parthenon in Athens, up a little bit. Hard to notice when you look at it, but if you stand on one step and your partner stands on the far end of the temple on the same step, you'll see each other from the knees up because that uh, line bows up a little bit. Right. Did they actually calculate that in and, and implement it in stone to overcome the illusion of the sagging straight line? They did. The Parthenon, which is the temple built to Athena, the, the goddess of Athens, is such a large building that they knew that you couldn't visually perceive it the way that, you know, the human eye couldn't perceive it the way they wanted you to. So they created this this bend called entasis, which kind of makes it... Well, there's a name for it. <laughs> oh, we got names for everything. They're, they're and and then also in the same vein, the uh, columns that would be parallel from one side of the building left to right would look like they're falling away from each other. So I understand they bent a middle a bit, and if you actually extended the building up um, half a mile or something, the columns on the outside would come together? Yeah, well, pretty far up in the sky, but they would. Yeah. And and they, they swelled, they kind of made a swelling, like a pregnant column, so the columns didn't look like they were too skinny. They wanted them to feel like they were looking equally stable as you looked at them. And okay. they also spaced the columns differently. There's eight across the front of the Parthenon. So they, there's all sorts of you know visual tricks to allow that perfection to come so, through. And the, and the more you know about this, ahead of, again, you don't need to be a scholar, but to have a frisky, wide-eyed uh, curiosity about this makes your sightseeing more fun. Oh, it's just fascinating because you're amazed that they could do that, especially back then in you know, the third century. Now, I've always been impressed by how you can kind of measure the sophistication of a society architecturally by how big of a span they can make with no interior supports. Right. I always tell people if they go into a big hall, maybe an ancient architect would come here and be so impressed uh, with one thing. There's no interior supports. Right. And uh, I, I can measure this in my travels. If I go to the um, um, Hippo-style hall, I think that's in Karnak down by Luxor in, right. in Egypt, mm -hmm. you've got these uh, remains of an um, Egyptian temple, and it's, all, it's a forest of fat 
pillars, the fattest pillars I've seen anywhere, columns. And what I realize is that's because they couldn't span very much on the ceiling. So you needed fat columns to be close together because they couldn't span it much. Now, in Greek times, there was actually a, a canon of proportions, I think, as, as columns got skinnier and skinnier, and they could extend uh, wider on the top. And I understand capitals were even a way to fool the roof into thinking the the columns were fatter than they really were, minimizing the amount you had to span between that. Right. Then, of course, we had the Romans building their great dome at the Pantheon and so on. Um, if you are looking at architecture, you can get some... This is sort of a beginner's way to appreciate where they've gone architecturally. Can you build on that a little bit? What, does that make sense to you to be yeah. able to judge a society's sophistication by that span? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the Temple of, of Amun-Re at, at Karnak, as you're talking about, they had these huge, I mean, it looks like you're in a forest of trees. The, you can't the, see anybody. It's, it's all columns. It's just incredible. Yeah. Amazing hieroglyphs, but, you know. Um, and then and in uh, Greece, the same thing. They had to build the roofs out of uh, primarily wood because stone doesn't span as far, so the roof material would be um, partially wood. But it wasn't until you got to the Romans where you really... They discovered Radical the use of the arch. The arch is one of the most fascinating things in architecture because the Greeks were, as I said, the last of the megalithic stone uh, builders, and they used the big pieces. They knew of the arch, but they didn't really expand upon it. The Romans became the engineers, where the Greeks were a little bit more of artists. Right. I would consider the, the Romans to be engineers. But the, and the Greeks may have been smart, but they didn't have those engineering breakthroughs like the round arch. Right. The Greeks, uh, if, I, if I have it right, had the corbelled vault, which was, if you, I always picture it like put two tables close together, maybe three inches apart, and then you stack dominoes from each table kind of out over each other until they come together. Right. Now, you've bridged the gap between the two tables, and the ant could walk across the top of those dominoes, but it, can't, it doesn't support much, right? I like that, that uh, little picture there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and, that's, uh, <laughs> and that's my image of the weak corbelled vault. Right. So they have this triangular area created by that uh, corbelled vault, which they could fill in with a decorative piece on top of the door or, or the, the entry or like whatever. Like Right. Yeah, I'm thinking of Mycenae. And uh, the uh, Romans got this round arch, and now oh, there's no no limit to what they could build. Right. Yes, the corbelled arch has all the stones horizontally, which are not, you know, they're not structurally strong. So uh, when you get into the round arch, it is much stronger. But we actually know the Greeks knew about the round arch. That's what's so interesting, but they just never really hmm. exploited it. But so the, it, wasn't their, it wasn't their focus. They it want, wasn't their focus. Because Romans were, were like bigger and bigger, and how yeah. good are you? Well, how big are you? Right. I think if a Roman came here on a vacation to 21st century America, he'd probably want to see a freeway interchange or something like probably. this. You know, 99 maybe, you know. Great, yeah. great example of, a, of a controlling lots of traffic or, or building something huge and powerful with concrete. Absolutely. And that, of course, is the other important thing about the Romans is they not only knew about the power and the strength of the arch, but they exploited concrete. Cement makes a putty putty. Cement makes a putty putty. Cement makes a party party. A bottle of booty, a bottle of scooty. Cement makes a party party. Cement makes a party party. Cement makes a party party. A bottle of beet, concrete. There's more with Catherine Rogers Merlino on how to appreciate architecture in your sightseeing. Plus, your calls just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-7425 or reach us by email at radio at ricksteves.com Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
877-333-RICK. Or by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you participate in Travel with Rick Steves. By the way, I'm talking with Catherine Rogers Merlino. She's a, an assistant professor of architecture at the University of Washington, and she leads study programs around Europe for the students. Roman, uh, we look at Rome, and it was like a marble facade, right? But behind that, you got what you got bricks and crude concrete? Right, right. So Roman concrete was really the invention of using concrete in forming. So you can make it, it's a plastic material, you can pour it in any form that you want. And the Romans used their concrete, they never left it bare. They always faced it with either stone or brick. So the concrete wasn't exposed, rough on the outside. And the sandwich of concrete and brick or stone, they could use it in any form. And they really used it in the arch. And the arch when you take one arch, and if you can imagine, you know, a single arch stacked up in a row, that becomes what we call a barrel vault. Mm-hmm. And that can march on for this long kind of arcade or any sort of interior form like they used it in the basilicas and the, in the baths. And then, of course, if you take an arch and you spin it on its center, it becomes a dome. And the dome is this wonderful, incredible artistic piece that was used for years and years after the Romans used it in their form. So, you know, you look at a building like the Pantheon, it's one of the most amazing engineering marvels that we have. It's the oldest, best preserved building in the Roman world because it was built so well. Built so well, and it was never put into disuse and therefore cannibalized. That's true. That, that has a lot to do with it. It was a church. It was a market. It was a hospital. So it essentially went straight from being a temple to the pantheon of ancient pagan gods, right, a pantheon, to a Christian church. Uh, and just uh, just a couple hundred yards away, there's, right. where there's a temple that was never used. And for generations, it was just considered a quarry. And the peasants from Dark Age Rome would go over there when they needed a block of stone and pull it off of this old derelict uh, temple. And maybe they'd find one of the uh, metal pegs that held the stones together. That'd right. be quite a windfall. That was them. worth a lot of money there. They can melt those down. Jackpot. For... I found yeah. a peg today. A, a metal peg. <laughs> hey, we've got uh, some uh, calls and some emails here. I'm talking again with Catherine Rogers Merlino, an assistant uh, professor of architecture at the University of Washington in Seattle. And we have um, Autumn on the line from Edmonds, Washington. Autumn, yeah, thinking about appreciating some architecture in Europe? Well, yes, I'm thinking about where you're going from here. I, uh, one of the first things that struck me when I first started learning about castles, and it follows right through into buildings as well, is if you looked at how they were put together, you could see the time span in history. So you, we've stayed in places in like downtown Paris, for instance, at Place de la Concorde, and you've got 1800s block stone outside, and then when you look in your courtyard, there's little pebbles all scattered around, which are more 1300s. So you can see the development, uh, the development of technology and the development of the use of tools. So it's sort of that part, I think, is interesting to, to study just a bit of, too. So, so you can read the ages building upon the previous stones of, of yeah. earlier ages. And then looking at the thickness of the walls, you know, they got thinner and thinner, and of course the arches and that type of thing, too. I think my favorite buildings with, you're talking about the Greek architecture, is the Blue Mosque and the Hagia Sophia in mm. Istanbul. Yeah, the Blue Mosque is quite a bit later, but the um, Hagia Sophia is uh, back uh, to... Early uh, Christian, early, right. Early Christian times, yeah, so but that's just that style, that style of architecture with uh, stacking on top of each other. Oh, yeah, it's, the dome on top of dome in that case. Yeah. It, it's so, uh, it's different, so different from the Gothic, and yet it, you get the same type of feeling. And then uh, the Blue Mosque I just loved because of the use of tiles. The colors are just so brilliant, and the fact that if you... Tiles are so durable, and I've seen tile pieces that have been picked up and moved from one place thousands of miles to another place and then laid down again for a floor and, you know, just stolen during wars from one place to another. And so tile is such a, an interesting type of material to use, too. And I have to say, I did your tile walk, Rick, in Rome. Uh-huh. That was wonderful. What, my tile walk? What, yeah, is that, you mean mosaics, the, mosaics. All the mosaics. Yeah. To find the great mosaics in Europe is just wonderful. The Vatican, obviously the greatest mm-hmm. church in Europe, has it has a smoke problem, so you can't have canvas paintings in there. At first glance, it looks like it's a bunch of beautiful canvas paintings, but they are mosaic replicas of precious canvas paintings that can't be hung in a smoke-filled church through the ages, or they all mm-hmm. get sooty black. And if you're thinking of, the, you're talking about the great churches in Constantinople or, or modern-day Istanbul, Boy, uh, the Byzantine Empire had its uh, reaches into Western Europe, and in Ravenna, I think you'll find the greatest mosaics anywhere. And the fun thing, Autumn, you're talking about how the different societies would build upon each other, and you can see the renovations made. You talked about the Hagia Sophia, that it was the greatest, I think, dome in the Christian world until the uh, Brunelleschi's dome, I guess, in Florence, uh, maybe 800 years after or something. 
it, it was built as a church, so it would be facing Jerusalem. Later on, it would turned into a mosque, and the parent should be facing Mecca. So they couldn't move the whole building, uh, even though they changed religions, but they shifted the parentage just a little bit to the yeah, right. Yeah, the mirab's just slightly off-center. So it's just yeah. off-center, and then you wonder, what's the deal? Well, it was built as a church, and then it became a mosque, and Jerusalem and Mecca don't quite line up from Istanbul. And now I believe it's back to a museum again, is it not? Um, it I, is used as a museum, right? Yeah. yeah. I think and it's still technically a mosque. Well, in that building, too, the columns that are around the center portion were all taken from different buildings from Ephesus. So they're all different heights and columns, and yet they managed to balance. They really did manage to balance all that together. And a lot of these churches in Venice, the famous Church of St. Mark's, I call it early ransack, because most of the deck on the outside is just looted. The booty church, right. (laughs) Well, Autumn, thank you for your call. Okay. Happy travels. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Catherine, when you think about sightseeing through Europe, where where do you think the best Roman ruins are? The greatest thing about Roman ruins is the best Roman ruin is anyone that you can find that's not on a tour map. The greatest thing about the Roman Empire is that it covered every Mediterranean shore by the second century. And so the infrastructure of aqueducts and roads and temples and basilicas and baths are, mm. are left everywhere. Infrastructure, and so, you hit it. Infrastructure, yeah. yeah. They just they had built an empire built on this amazing public infrastructure that was all for the citizens. You know, it was all meant for you as a Roman citizen. So Rick. you get so, beat by Rome? Well, it's bad news, but now you're on the yeah. winning team and you got aqueducts, you got yeah. running water. Absolutely. You've you got, got stability. Public bathrooms down the road, you can have a social outing, you know. So wait, one of my favorite now that you mentioned it, infrastructure outside of Rome there, what do they call it? The aqueduct? Park. Yes, the aqueduct park's fabulous. Oh, man, these aqueducts go loping across the fields like uh, like happy deer, you know, heading right. into the city. Yeah. And uh, look at this incredible engineering built to bring water into the city. And then to think, if you're a clever barbarian, all you got to do is knock out one of those arches and you've cut the water off to the great city. And they did. And they did. <laughs> In the south of France, there's a lot of wonderful Roman ruins. Right, yeah. And uh, talk about infrastructure outside of um, Avignon. You've got like eight water wheels in a cascading series on a hillside, all powered by one river that was rerouted, or one canal, to grind the, the grain to keep thousands of uh, Roman soldiers fed. Right, because the bread was free as well as a Roman citizen. You get your you public betcha. bread. So it was a pretty amazing system. In fact, all the way till today, European leaders have known you've got to subsidize the cost of bread to keep your people happy. They're smart folk. Yeah. <laughs> Feed them, and they let's, will be happy. Let's talk about Greek ruins. Um, I think a lot of people think you've got to go all the way to Greece. Right. Good Greek ruins. You know, you can, you know, if you uh, do your travels, Italy is a very popular travel spot. You can go down south to Pestum and you can see some amazing Greek remnants that have three of the greatest temples that you can see in ancient Greece. You know, because the Greeks Pestum, settled. we're talking two hours south Pestum of Naples. Pestum is about basically. two hours south of Naples, right? right? And uh, it has three beautiful temples that are wonderfully preserved. There's also ones down, of course, in, in Sicily around the southern boot of Italy because the Greeks settled there so earlier than the Romans. So it's important for us to remember that 500 years before Christ, Southern Italy was called Magna Graecia. Magna Graecia, Great Greece. Greater Greece. Greece. So it was a, right. like a uh, frontier. Absolutely. For so the Greeks started to colonize a little bit before the Romans. And then, of course, the Romans went back and pushed them back into Greece. And so well, the wonderful thing that, that Autumn was talking about is the layers of history that you can see. And if you go down to Pestum, what you see is this, these amazing Greek temples with a Roman city essentially built around them. So you get this wonderful palimpsest, you know, this layers of history is one of our I, I favorite love that architectural layers of, What do you call it? Palimpsest. It's, it's the Latin word that means you, that you write on a piece of paper, and then if you move the paper, you can still see the imprint on the paper right. page underneath. And so okay. it's this layer, layers and layers of architecture and history. And, and in so many cases, a society will, will come in and conquer and build its most holy building on top of the, where, where the previous holy building was. Right, right. Consequently, you've got a, a distant, misty past Celtic holy ground, and then a pagan Roman temple, and then an early Christian church, and then even a more modern Christian church. Right. The Renaissance, the Baroque, it just layers just right on top. Down. Yeah. Let's talk about the first European architecture. I mean, you have the ancient world, 500 BC to 500 AD, basically, right. the rise and fall of Rome. Then 500 years of, you could call it darkness, relative, not much going on. And then 1,000, things start to kick into gear. Mm-hmm. What happens then? Well, this was a time when, uh, you know, the the society was changing a little bit, and people, of course, were fearful of the millennium, which there's books written about. It's it's pretty fascinating. The first millennium. The first millennium. I think we were a little fearful, too, in a way. Why 1K? What's no computers, happen? just what's going to happen to our, our, our they future. They thought the second coming, they thought this is going to be it. Uh, well, you wouldn't what, know. Of course, yeah. a lot of them didn't have calendars. That's what always cracked me up. They're not really sure when it was coming. But <laughs> but this is a time when uh, there was a new style of architecture that started to um, kind of come out of the, the dust. 
And this is the first time Europe is really building for the future. There's a confidence now. Population is growing. They're harnessing natural power, wind power and water power. Right. They're building for the future. Right. And, you know, all that Roman infrastructure that, you know, you can imagine mm-hmm. the entire continent of Europe being, you know, built together with this wonderful infrastructure. And then nobody's there to take care of it after the fall of Rome. Mm-hmm. And so buildings fall into disrepair. Political systems fall into disrepair. There's all the small city-states. Just pick yeah, the really just kind of And then 1,000, we got the first European-style Romanesque, right. named after Rome. Right. Why was that? Well, Romanesque was basically a, a name historians gave the style of architecture because they borrowed the arch, uh, this idea of using arches okay, and some Romanesque of the technology. Okay, because Romanesque has round arches it as has opposed round to arches. gothic pointed arches. Exactly. And Romanesque was generally in the southern part of Europe, you know, Italy and Spain and Germany. You get some of it up north as well, but that was primarily uh, dominated by the gothic and style. And at this point, the big churches were the first great buildings of what we think of as Europe. Right. And uh, they were fortresses of God. I mean, they were crenellated. They had those little fortifications places right. for the air... The, the, the bone arrows, yeah, absolutely. Certainly stout, big walls. Romanesque was all about heaviness, darkness, not big windows. See, they had lost the engineering um, genius of the Romans, but they borrowed the Roman style with the arch. So they didn't have big openings. They didn't have that much engineering prowess. They had lost a lot of the technology. But these buildings were also, yeah, they were. these people would retreat into churches. It's like being in a castle. It was incredible. It really is something when you go into some of these churches. And then when you go into these Romanesque churches in Europe, you feel like it's dark, it's gloomy. And when you read the Bible, right from the first page, it's clear, light is divine. Light's right. important. And it felt like a contradiction. And so they devised a way to have more light in the churches. And now tell me on this, because I took a tour once and we had an architect explaining this to us. He said, when you, take, when you have a round arch, the heavy weight of the stone roof sits squarely on the walls. And therefore, to have a big heavy stone roof, you've got to have heavy stone walls to support it. Yeah. Now, if you point the arch up just a little bit, that shoves the weight of the roof out instead of down. And regardless of how heavy the roof is, you don't need strong walls. You need buttresses to push the walls in so they don't fall outward because you've got pointed arches. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. It, the round arch is just limited. You have to kind of think of it. They can only do so much. It can only be as big as a half a circle. You can't go up too high. You can't go up okay. too wide. Hmm. And so it limits you on the size of the building, for one thing. Right. The pointed arch can be either a shallow point or a really tall point. So it gives you, A, different kind of configurations to make the building. And then it does it. It makes that power, that force, go outwards. So taking it outward actually means that you can put this the, the structure on the outside of the building. Exoskeletal. Exoskeleton's like having, it's like a spider, you know, that's holding up a right. big body. You can take that those legs out, and then the wall can be made thinner, and that wall can now be opened up for windows. And you got it all this glorious stained glass, the, the, the glories of uh, heavenly light pouring into the people as they worship. Absolutely. It is. It's like a skeleton building. Yes. As a tour guide, before I bring people into a Gothic cathedral, I want them to understand this. So we build a Gothic cathedral out of tourists. Now, yes. envision this. It takes 13 tourists. You've probably done this too, Catherine. It, I, I take volunteers, and we have six people to volunteer to be columns, and we have three columns facing three columns, and then they hold their arms up to come together, four arms coming together, and while their arms, we call them ribs because that's the architecture term for these uh, spines that go up to the top of the ceiling. Now they're pointed arches and the columns, and if you have a spire, stand in the middle. One guy gets to be the spire. You get a light guy with big muscles, and he puts his hands on the forearms coming together and hoists himself up to try to be the spire of that church, but his weight will push the columns not down, but because they're pointed, it will push them out. So you don't need stronger columns. You need buttresses. So we've already got six, seven people, the spire and six columns. I, I ask for six more volunteers, and, and uh, six more people come up, and they are buttresses, and they stand flush against the columns. And then I say, well, let's be flying buttresses. Yes, so you have they, to have the flying you buttresses. you got a flying yeah. buttress. So they step back one step, and their arms become ribs coming in onto the waist of the columns, and they support the columns, these flying buttresses. Then the spire can hoist himself up to the top, and you've got yourself a solid Gothic structure made out of 13 Yeah, and you get gargoyles with their tongue sticking out. Gargoyles would yeah. be a good thing. I always yes. have the gargoyles. That's Great. So there's your structural uh, approach to Gothic. Um, there's fun ways that I think you can make this kind of sightseeing come to life. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, whether you like it or not, you're going to be spending a lot of time in these great buildings. I mean, the churches are free. They're right in the main square. They dominate the town. It's raining out. You step in there. For years, I would just look in there and think, this is big. And this is old. It's bit older and bigger than That's anything my dad. Down. My dad, I brought him through on a tour once, and he kept going, this is really old, isn't it, Catherine? I said, yes. But there's is. more to it than that. Yes. And just a few uh, pages of uh, preparation, I think, before your trip makes a lot of difference. One thing I also like to do, especially with the Gothic cathedrals, is, and this, this may sound kind of funny, but I like people to go up and touch the buildings. You know, this stone is so old, and it's the sculpture and the carvings, the flying buttresses. You know, get up there and really feel the texture of the building, and you, you feel the patina of the age, and you mm. understand how this was constructed 
it a thousand years earlier, and really you can understand the stone. Some of it has worn down. Some of it's been in good shape. But when you, you really get up close that way, and I think a lot of people, especially with Gothic buildings, because not only is it this incredible structural element of the system that makes the building so incredible, but it's the sculpture inside and the stories that were being told from the Bible I and the stories that, yeah. that come even from pagan traditions that a lot of these sculptures um, and sculptures it's, it's are. woven into the Christian churches in so many ways. Absolutely, you know, because they just borrowed, I mean. And know, that's what related to the local people. And a lot of times people were forced to convert. Right, and absolutely. It's a lot nicer on your attitude if you can see a few of your little pagan goblins up there too. Absolutely, you feel a little bit more comfortable with yeah. it. A lot of times you tell somebody to feel this beautiful marble column and you feel it and it warms up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The feeling of marble, especially that but, I mean, convection. If, you know? But, you know, and they, they say it in a lot of poorer societies, they couldn't afford to have a real marble because it's quite expensive. So they would paint stucco. I've been told that if marble will stay cool, but if you touch it, it'll actually warm up over time if it's fake marble. And there's a lot of fake marble around. Well, the big change, of course, is the Renaissance. And with the Renaissance, we've got this dramatic uh, shift. It's a humanism sort of movement. And, you know, to me, up until the Renaissance, that's about 1400, art was okay if it glorified God. That meant architecture was the number one thing, and other stuff was okay if it made the house of God fancy. You know, you could have stained glass, you could have statues in niches, you could have tapestries that warmed up the walls of the churches and so on. But then in the Renaissance, you can actually have art for art's sake, statues for rich guys in squares in, in their villas. Now, that's my uh, simplistic, touristic approach. Catherine, you're a professor. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Renaissance is such a, an amazing rebirth, of course, which is what Renaissance means, of these new, uh, mostly looking back at classical traditions, classical texts, all these new uh, ideas that were being rediscovered about philosophy and, and reason. And, and art became something to investigate and to explore. And it became something that also was just there for the beauty of it and the poetry of it and the idea of making this perfection, you know, this this idea of art and architecture into this glorification of God, which God, of course, is a reflection of beauty and perfection. So it wasn't really anti-religious, but it certainly was a new way of looking at art. Yeah, that's my feeling. In the Renaissance, we got Christians like Michelangelo, who could be taken as anti-Christian humanists, but really, they were faithful in that they thought the best way to glorify God was to recognize the talents God gives you and to use them. And, and to the glory of God, they built all this beautiful, beautiful art, and they sort of glorified the human body now, right? Michelangelo's favorite thing was the, the human body, and uh, we're made in God's image. Right. And it's also important to remember the Renaissance was also a political change in the society because this is a time when in Florence, when uh, the rising middle class was coming into being, families getting rich on, on banking, uh, the silk guilds, the wool guilds, and they now had the freedom and the interest and the money, quite honestly, to become patrons of the arts. And so that's when all of these new ideas started to flourish. And certainly, artistically, we had new discoveries of uh, of perspective, different ways of representing you know, three-dimensional on a two-dimensional plane. Brunelleschi was the one who really did some writings on perspective. And uh, he was the one, of course, who did the Duomo of uh, Florence, who designed the dome. And, uh, and Alberti, they started to write about how these new discoveries were being made, and that became like the study of art, all for the glorification still of God, but really also art for art's sake. How about email for email's sake? You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com to follow up on today's discussion about architecture in your travels. Later this hour, we'll visit Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, for something completely different in terms of architecture and just about everything else. If you've got travel bug bites, we've got the medicine. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. We're visiting with University of Washington professor Catherine Rogers Merlino, who's helping us better appreciate the role of architecture in your travels. We always like to hear from you, too. You can write us at radio at ricksteves.com. It's our weekly adventure on the radio. Travel with Rick Steves. Now, George from Tucson writes us, and, and he asks about the concept of the Renaissance genius. I mean, up until now, we had we had pretty much anonymous craftspeople. Now we got famous guys, well-paid guys, and broad in their genius. Right. Well, Renaissance genius, I think, it's a, it's a great term, but I, I think, um, you know, basically what it meant is that these men were people who could be sculptors, like a lot of the architects were, or like Brunelleschi, who was actually trained as a goldsmith, and he became famous by designing a dome on top of a church, which is a very unusual, you know, change from a goldsmithing. They were artists, they were philosophers. And for architecture, what's really exciting is that this is really the first time that we see architects actually 
thinking about rationally and theoretically designing a building before it's constructed, not huh. just kind of building on a tradition, but they're conceiving wow. it, they're looking at it from a theoretical model, they're drawing pictures and saying, oh, this is balanced, it's symmetrical, it's harmonious, and they're planning it before it's constructed from these ideas that they're thinking about because, of course, this new confidence and this new idea of, of looking at things from a different it's perspective. It's humanism. Yeah, humanism. Basically humanism. And what was Leonardo's tomb? He said, uh, I, I forget it, but you can kind of paraphrase it. When he wrote his own epitaph, he said, here lies Leonardo, the world-class engineer, scientist, man of letters, uh, architect, uh, poet, musician. Oh, and I could paint as well as any man also. <laughs> I mean, it's just like assumed that they could do all of this kind of stuff. Right, right. Michelangelo was uh, trained as a sculptor. Right. Pope wants him to go down to Rome and decorate the church. Man, he does the Sistine ceiling. I don't think he really wanted to, I, I've read, but didn't yes. Want, no, but, but the Pope he re- did a pretty good job. <laughs> but, he, but he did a pretty good job as a painter, even though he's trained right. as a, and he designed uh, St. Peter's uh, the dome, the dome as well. Yeah, greatest he dome on looked Earth. after Brilansky. They were very. It really expressed the confidence in men that the Renaissance genius really represented. This idea that I can do anything, I can take on anything. I've been given the tools. I've read these texts. Now, when these guys, this is sort of an intellectual movement. The next great Absolutely. thing in, in European art was the Baroque movement, which mm-hmm. was more emotional, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it was. I think political, and it was emotional. The the idea behind the Baroque architecture at first started with the church and kind of the whole counter-reformation of bringing people back into the church, and they wanted to create a new type of architecture that would create a direct faith experience with people as they walk into a church. So it's would theater, almost. Theater, drama, you know, really get those those hairs standing in the back of your, your neck standing up and, and wanting to go into this really faithful spot. And, and it kind of ties in with what was going on in Europe at that time, the religious wars. I mean, Martin mm-hmm. Luther with the Reformation. I mean, a hundred years of killing between Protestants and Catholics. I think a third of Germany was dead. Yeah, at and least. In a lot of ways, people were just wa- wasted by this and just said, come on, let's just go to church and praise God any way they tell us to, and let me just get a glimpse of heaven. Right. So you got this need for some stability, and, and I think the Baroque was kind of propaganda for pro-status quo. Absolutely. You give me a king and let him be God on earth. I don't care. Right. He can wear leotards and a, and, a, and a wig, and he can have this huge palace like Versailles, but just give me Baroque. Give me pro-status quo. And, and a lot of times these gods on earth kings, these Louis XIV, their Baroque palaces, the whole idea was to control nature, to kind of prove or show that you are ordained by God, if not divine yourself. Right, right. Yeah, and you look at Bernini's statue of, of St. Teresa in ecstasy, and you just see the drama in her face, and you realize that they really were trying to get you to feel an emotion, which was very different than the Renaissance. So Michelangelo would be more uh, cerebral. Yeah, a little, and, a little more controlled. And then controlled. Bernini would be more emotional. Absolutely. Yeah. Margaret here from Santa Monica asks, what is the difference between Baroque and Rococo? See, that's kind of confusing to me also. Well, you know, it's kind of a regionalized version. Rococo was much later, and it primarily occurs in the Bavarian kind of Austrian area of Germany. You don't really call much architecture Rococo in Italy. You know, some of these movements kind of had specific um, movements towards uh, a different style of something that was very similar. But it was still based on something that was very Catholic. You know, I, I think you could uh, say that the Baroque movement was a church movement at first. It was, it was propagated by the church. And then, you know, kind of moved northward into different areas. And this areas. was sort of frilly. I mean, Baroque was kind of like controlled exuberance. And to me, Rococo is like uncontrolled exuberance. Rococo gets, you know, a lot of pink and gold and white. It's very... F- Syrupy. Kind of, Syrupy. It's uh, not symmetrical, but intentionally asymmetrical. Right. Sometimes the the uh, frames are actually more fancy than the, the painting itself. And Absolutely. And you don't know what to look at. And what's interesting is about some of the churches that they have no decoration on the outside. But when you walk in, it's almost like an explosion of this Rococo. Decoration to the obliteration of form. That's yeah. what I like to think oh, of. Oh, that's that a good went, term. That went so far overboard that the reaction was the neoclassical age, the French yes. Revolution. Chop off their heads if they're not logical. <laughs> and there you got neoclassical, right? Yes, back to absolutely. The Roman temples and right so back on. to some serene systems. I'm talking with Catherine Rogers Merlino, and, and we're just having a lot of fun thinking about architecture in your travels. There's plenty of ways to spice up your travels by understanding the architecture you're looking at. I've got a few uh, emails here. We got an email from Hugh in Denville, uh, New Jersey. Hugh's an engineer, and he's found that the historical context of architectural details all over Europe is fascinating. Examples, uh, Rotenburg under Tauber in Germany, 12th century cathedral in, in France, and the Ehrenberg Castle in, in southern uh, Germany in Bavaria. You know, these castles give you a, a fascinating insight into what's going on. Well, architecture goes era after era after era, and it's so much fun in your travels to be able to not be a scholar about any of this stuff, but to just have enough of a broad understanding to to have a handhold on this, because then your sightseeing takes on a little more meaning. Now, we have the neoclassical age, and that's the age of revolution. That brings in the modern age, and and the pendulum swings in an interesting way. You've got this stern neoclassical, and people kind of want to be more emotional, don't they? And the, the contrast in the middle of the 1800s would be 
romanticism. Right, right, romanticism. For instance, the um, Halls of Parliament in London burned down middle of the 1800s, they decided, what are, how are we going to rebuild it? And many people said, neoclassical, you know, like our Congress building. Right. And people said, no, 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 enough of this intellectualism, enough of this, uh, um, you know, humanism. We want to go back to our medieval roots, our Christian roots. And they decided to do it neo-Gothic, right? Right. So Big Ben looks medieval, but it's just uh, 1850s, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 19th century, A.W. Pugin was very Christian. He felt that Gothic was the only style of architecture for England and that we should rebuild this and in our English architecture. You know, so that you was know, indigenous. The, the it was Gothic indigenous. Was, was English. And, and it was localized where neoclassicism was being built everywhere in the New World, in France, everywhere to promote this hmm. new nationalism. And so going back to the kind of their Gothic roots meant we were getting a little bit more individuality. And for me as the tourist, I know that Gothic is usually stone. And if I see Gothic arches and so on in it with brick... Right. To me, that's a telltale sign. It's neo-Gothic, right. 19th century. Probably some, some you know, cast iron underneath there. Yeah, right. That's, that's <laughs> what's really interesting. Right. A glorious Gothic building, but it's got Out cast iron, iron yeah. underneath. And uh, this is when we have an interesting thing going on. I mean, they got the, the industrial age and mm-hmm. all the age of, what do you call it, iron and glass. Right, so industrial revolution. All the uh, railway lines being laid and all these classic railway stations. You got the Eiffel Tower being built. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you've got Mad Ludwig's uh, fairy tale Disney kind of castle being built. So you got your industrial age, erector set art, right. and you've got people that are uh, reacting against that and doing this fanciful medieval stuff, and that's neo-Romanesque and neo-Gothic, like the, the fairy tale castle we see in Bavaria. Right. It's a very romantic era. I think people kind of feel like the, the factories, the, the railroad trains, life is changing very quickly. They could buy soap being mass-produced. Everything was mass-produced, and people were, were kind of missing that earlier era. And so, you know, kind of the neo-anything was really looking back to a romantic past and there looking at— There was a at, lot of neo. I mean— A lot of neo, yeah. Neo, neoclassical, neo-baroque, neo-Byzantine. Right. So they went kind of back to their roots. And, and another reaction that actually happened at the turn of the century is that um, they started to look back— or started to look at a new type of architecture and design that, that hit all sorts of, you know, textiles and clothing design and furniture design that was called arts and crafts. And that took all sorts of different meanings throughout Europe, Art Nouveau. Uh, so Art Nouveau is, arts and crafts is the bigger it's umbrella? It's kind of the bigger umbrella, and it took little regional variations. Okay. Because I think of Art Nouveau, and maybe that's the American name for it, but we've got Modernista in right. uh, Catalan in Spain. Right. And we've got Jugendstil. Jugendstil. And uh, uh, what was the Art and Nouveau in Glasgow and Scotland? Was uh, that? It's Art Nouveau, Art Nouveau as well. Or- so we see this organic, curvy. It's, it right. looks like it's growing out of a bamboo shoot or and something And it's very like different this. than industrial, isn't it? It's it it a, feels yeah. very well, it's a, natural. It's a contrast. It's that pendulum sort of thing. Absolutely. And then from a tourist point of view, the big thing is getting back to what I started, the modern architecture. And there I was in the field looking at this church by Le Corbusier. Oh, very good. Oh, I did it. Ranchamp. And all these other people that knew more than me were falling to their <laughs> knees and weeping. And I just thought, won't it be fun to learn a little more about this so I can fall to my knees and weep too? We've got great architecture today by people that are working right now that we may not even appreciate until tourists 200 years from now recognize this and all the best-selling postcards are buildings that we walk right by today, except for the people that know enough about it to appreciate it ahead of its time, perhaps. Right. I've been talking with Catherine Rogers Merlino, Assistant Professor of Architecture at my alma mater, the University of Washington. Go Huskies. And Catherine is also a tour guide and runs the study program for the University of Washington in Rome. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on architecture, and maybe it can help us all understand and enjoy our sightseeing a little bit more. You're welcome. It was fun. If you have a taste for the exotic in your travels, you'll enjoy the sights, sounds, and, well, most of the smells of the legendary city of Kathmandu. The capital of Nepal, high in the Himalayas, is thought to be 2,000 years old. The allure of this ancient city, in spite of the encroachment of the noisy and polluted modern world, is holding its own. Kerry Moran, author of The Moon Handbook to Nepal, gives us a quick peek at Kathmandu. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're going together to the kingdom of the Himalayas, Nepal, and we're going to visit the capital city, Kathmandu. And I've got with me a woman who lived 13 years in Kathmandu and has written a great guidebook on Nepal, Kerry Moran, who writes the Moon Handbook to Nepal. Kerry, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you today, Rick. I love the way you describe this incredible city, Kathmandu. I'll just read a, a few sentences here in your, from your guidebook. An urban pocket in the midst of a hidden land. Kathmandu swirls with activities emblematic of both old and new. Boisterous bazaars, crowded temples, luxury hotels, blue-jeaned punks, orange-robed yogis, honking taxis, sacred cows, 
all can be found amid the narrow, nameless streets of a city where each day begins at dawn with a prayer. Mm. I think travel makes a person a poet. Well, a place like Kathmandu will do it if nowhere else will. Oh, wow. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> so you lived, you lived 13 years in Kathmandu. I did from uh, 85 to 98. Wow. And you must have seen a lot of change in that period. I did. It's true, especially in terms of, um, well, you know, traffic was a very visible change. But so it went from being a fairly heavily trafficked city to a gridlocked city in the time I was there. They don't have a lot of roads, but they do have a lot of vehicles. So is that just a matter of uh, modern affluence coming in? Uh, in a great part. Uh, the taxes and the levies on vehicles changed over the course of time I was there, so it became much easier for people to get their own car. And people want cars, and I did too. <laughs> so now today uh, it's a, a noisy modern sort of city, if, uh, except if you're in the old center or what? Some parts of it can be just this noisy, dusty, smoky, chaotic, incredible mess. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like driving in Kathmandu. <laughs> And some parts in the quieter, older streets, the narrow part of the old town, are still very uh, just just timeless. So you can still find that timeless magic that I found when I was you, there. You, yeah, you walk off the streets and into the courtyards. Many of the old houses in the old city are built around these big, spacious courtyards where no vehicles enter, but there's right. maybe a thousand-year-old statue there or some 500-year-old wood carvings and people doing laundry and sorting vegetables and kids playing. And, and you can have these otherworldly experiences. I mean, go into the bazaar. There's You write about the oddities in the bazaar. Tell us oh. a little bit about the, the oh, Kathmandu so Bazaar. Oh, it's so much fun. Just to wander around and look and go, what is that thing? Like uh, those big brown balls that look like cannonballs, but they're actually laundry soap. Huh. Or uh, little dried fish, very pungent smelling. Or these big heaps of spices, turmeric and uh, chili pepper and beautiful colors. Goat heads. What do they do with the goat heads? Well, the goat head is removed from the goat and the goat meat is eaten and the head is nailed up on the butcher shop. I guess it's like an advertisement <laughs> saying goat meat available here. <laughs> And the goat's all rubbed with turmeric as a preservative because they don't have much refrigeration, so the skin is quite um, gold-colored. Now, there's the living virgin goddess, Kumari. I'll never forget uh, going into the courtyard, and she came out to uh, almost like the Pope comes out on St. Peter's Square. Tell me, <laughs> that's right. Tell me about this living virgin goddess. Well, this is a tradition that's gone on for hundreds of years among the Nawars of Kathmandu, who are the, they're indi- they're the indigenous people of the Kathmandu Valley. And they choose a little girl periodically to represent the uh, goddess Talaju. It's believed that the goddess comes and lives in her body until the time she reaches puberty, at which time another little girl is chosen to um, incarnate the goddess. She lives in a special house, in a special room. She doesn't touch the ground. She's carried whenever she goes outside. Um, She is paraded around in festivals in a big uh, wooden chariot pulled by devotees. Wow, the living virgin goddess, and you can see her. She makes uh, she she makes a public appearance regularly, and the tourists are welcome to join. With That's right. You can walk into the courtyard and. Wow, and I'll never forget hiking up to the monkey temple. Swayamunath. Ah, and they've got these big eyes looking out over the valley. Mm, it's such a beautiful temple, and nobody knows how old it is. That's what fascinates me. It's at least fifteen hundred years old. And the prayer wheels spinning around, and the flags. And little gilt temples all around. And the most aggressive monkeys I've ever encountered. They're a little scary. (laughs) These monkeys, I mean, they came at my glasses. They wanted my glasses, and they wouldn't get that. And then they took my digestive biscuits. Yes, they like to snatch biscuits out of your hand. So you Mm. need to be careful with your cookies around (laughs) these monkeys. (laughs) Well, there was a a show, a tour show called Yak and Yeti. Do they still have that? You mean... At the Yak and Yeti Hotel? At the Yak and Yeti, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the the hotels. uh, Many of the big hotels have like a dance and song and dance kind of show performance. I thought that was uh, very, very touristic, but a wonderful look at the traditional dance and culture. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to get a little smorgasbord of uh, traditional ethnic groups. Now, for me, the highlight of of, uh, my visit to Kathmandu was actually side-tripping out to a town called Bhaktapur. Yes. This was a medieval wonderland. I felt like I was in a time tunnel capsule. Yes. How can that be so magic? Tell me about Bhaktapur. Bhaktapur is amazing. Uh, It's one of the three old kingdoms of the valley. Kathmandu used to be an independent kingdom. Patan was the second one, and Bhaktapur was the third. And of all those three towns, Bhaktapur is by far the most traditional, the most peaceful, the most agriculturally based still. Uh, German foreign aid helped the local people develop and preserve their architecture in the 80s and the early 90s. So there's a number of beautiful restored temples there. The streets are red brick, remember? Not paved streets, but red brick streets. It was an open-air folk museum, but it wasn't a museum. It was no, all it's these a living. traditional... It was a living experience. Yes, Bhaktapur.
tour is well worth a day, if not several days. It's timeless. I love the signs. Uh, in the museums, they say, uh, keep yourself away. <laughs> I don't remember that. And, that's in the, in the ho- good. I saw a hotel, f- hotel for the homely. <laughs> and uh, uh, please get here. Yeah. <laughs> I've been talking with Kerry Moran. She is the author of The Moon Handbook to Nepal. And just for a few minutes, we've been in Kathmandu. Thank you, Kerry, very much for your insight into a fascinating city. You're welcome, Rick. I sit beside the dark Beneath the mire Cold, grey, dusty day The morning lake Drinks up the sky Kathmandu I'll soon be seeing you And your strange, bewildering time Will hold me down Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here's some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. Yossi Yeniskins of Long Beach, California, shares this haiku with us. Morning in Paris. Café au lait, steaming hot, welcomes the day. Peter Lentini of Seattle wrote us several evocative haiku about the moon. Here's one of our favorites. Moon threw back her head, open-mouthed, gulped the starlight. Languid and content. And Jennifer Burns of Nashville, Tennessee, sent us this poem she wrote about her trip to Ireland. Wondrous hills agreen surround the winding back roads, filled with Ireland's sheep. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.